welcome to another episode of I'm Coming Out, the podcast where people tell me, Johnny Harvey, their coming out stories. And today's guest is Rory O'Neill, aka Panty Bliss. Rory is someone who needs little to no introduction. He has worked as a drag queen for over 30 years now and has toured the world many times over with his stage shows. In that time, he has also added the roles of publican, activist and writer to his CV. But it was in 2014 that Rory came to national and international prominence when a rousing speech he gave on homophobia in a Dublin theatre went viral. He subsequently became synonymous with the Equal Marriage Campaign in Ireland, with the country becoming the first in the world to pass it by popular vote the following year. He is held in such high esteem in his homeland that he is often referred to here as the Queen of Ireland and he is an LGBTQ plus icon the world over. He has become the poster boy and girl for a more modern, diverse and inclusive Ireland. I was really anxious interviewing Rory, although I needn't have been because he was lovely. I could easily have chatted to him for much longer. I only got through a few of the questions I had planned, actually. But as you can imagine, he is a very busy man. And I was lucky that he was able to squeeze me into his schedule at all, really. We met up a few weeks ago and we chatted about what it's like having a gay brother when you're gay also yourself, what he really thinks has been his life's work, why he would consider himself an atheist, how he really feels about drag hitting the mainstream, and we bonded over our shared dislike, or hatred really, of football. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating, review and subscribe as it really helps me and other people to discover the podcast. I hope you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening and here it is. Hello Rory and welcome to my podcast. Thanks for agreeing to do the interview. You're, you're very welcome. So I was reading your book. I read it a few months back. Mm-hmm. I rewatched the documentary last night. Mm-hmm. So what really struck me about you is you're really multi-talented, aren't you? You're like a, a renaissance man of sorts. You're a businessman, an activist, a writer, a speaker. Is there anything that... That's just because I'm not qualified to do anything. So I just have to... Do whatever presents itself. Oh, you're too humble. So um, is there anything that you're not good at? What can Rory O'Neill not do? Oh, I'm really badly organized. I literally forget what I'm doing from one day to the next. I'm a, I, you know, I'm the kind of person who will miss an airplane because I thought it was in three days time. I'm so bad at that. I'm also bad at, you know, meetings and photocopying and all that stuff. So... People often say to me, uh, are you going to go into politics? And, you know, at some point, most all maybe of the parties have approached me at some point and I would absolutely be terrible at it. Doesn't stop a lot of people, though, does it? Uh, no, it doesn't. And actually, half the time anyway, I get credit for stuff I don't deserve because what I say is, you know, that when I'm accused sometimes of having talents, I say basically I'm Madonna, but with a difference in the sense that Madonna knows good people and works with them. Okay, And that's what I think is my actual talent. I know good people and I think, you know, and then I work with them. But unlike Madonna, I'm also lazy enough to just get out of the way and let them do what they do. Good delegation skills. Yes, I'm excellent at that. Have you had any giant turkeys in your career? Like, have you had a swept away? And I I had to sort of struggle because I've been very lucky that I've never done something that like horribly bombed. Now, in saying that, I was a club promoter for years. And did loads of different parties and events. And a couple of those never really got off the ground. So, you know, 
but you know, in general, I've been very lucky. Let's go right back to the very beginning now. So when you were growing up in Ballinrobe, County Mayo, a child of the 70s, what was your awareness of homosexuality or did you have any at all? Zero, zilch, none, nada. And I think younger people sometimes really, they don't really believe that or they can't imagine that. But literally, you know, imagine there's no internet, right? So all of the outside world, you just have the radio and the television. The radio was RT1. You know, the, the, the other stations were illegal. Like, I would be lying in bed and I'd listen to a radio station that was broadcasting from a ship in the Irish Sea because that's how they got around the, you know, the, the laws or the regulations. And so, and then television, I was in two channel land. It was RTE 1 and 2. Well, RTE 1 at first. Well, actually, it was just called RTE because they didn't have to have a 1. Yeah. There was no 2 to differentiate it from. And then, eventually, you know, but RTE 1 and 2, sort of as I was a, you know, child growing up, and there was nothing. There was no Graham Norton. There was no anybody. There was nobody who out gay in my in my, the world view. And and I laugh about it because and I think you said you're writing the book and I'm pretty sure it's in it. I really remember like when um, village people were singing YMCA and all that. We never thought for a second they were gay because <laughs> we had no reference point yeah, for there was leather no queen. vocabulary. Like for we us, yeah. saw the guy all dressed in leather, but didn't that didn't mean anything to us yeah. in Ballon Road. He was just a guy dressed up in a funny outfit, you know. So, like, when people like Boy George came along or Bronsky Beat and that, that was a big, like, ground-shaking yeah, thing. Yeah, it must have been. To be just openly gay. So, like, me growing up, there was only one, you know, gay person, and that was Mr. Humphreys from that sitcom, Are You Being Served? Oh, I've heard of him. And, 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 and he, you know, he just made all the gay jokes, and he was flaming, yeah. and he was just the butt of jokes. That, that was it. And other people, you know, let's say, like Larry Grayson or these kind of, you know, presenters on the TV, it was never vocalized their sexuality. They were camp mm. and playing it up for entertainment value. But nothing, not in a camp way like, say, Graham Norton, where he's obviously saying gay stuff. They were just being camp. And it was, I guess, some maybe older people assumed they were gay, but to me, it meant nothing. So, yeah, none. And then weirdly, you're asking me this now, because last week I went down to Kildare to a little tiny bookshop because this Desmond Morris, who bizarrely, he's, I mean, he's very English, home counties, all of that stuff, BBC, everything. And he's now 92. But he bizarrely, he's living in Kildare for the last year because his son works at the Curra now. And so he's there. And, um, and he's written an, another book at 92 years old. Wow. And, um, and so because he's not exactly maybe up for having big launches these days or anything, they had a, like a little book launch in this local bookstore in, in um, Kildare. So I went down because he... I don't know, you're probably too young, but he's <laughs> on the TV, he's on BBC. He's kind of like a David Attenborough type. But he also, he's written 72 books. And one of them is in the top 20 best-selling books of all time. So 20 million copies or something. And it was called The Naked Ape. And it was sort of the first popular science book to treat humans uh, the same way we would animals. You know, to describe them as humans in the way you would just, you know, a zoologist would describe animal behavior. And it became a huge, massive bestseller and everybody had it. And my parents had it. And it was on my parents' bookshelf for years. And when I was around 12 or something, I don't remember exactly, I started reading it. And there was a chapter on sexuality. And within that, there was a subsection on homosexuality. And he just described what a homosexual was and what homosexuals did. And it was the most exciting thing I'd ever in my life. And that was the first time you came across it? That, that had a name. Put, like, there, sh- sure, there had been jokes in the playground, but I didn't okay. really understand those jokes. I don't think anybody really did. You know, 
we kind of vaguely knew what a gay but but I, we didn't know if they really existed. But here was a, a scientist just writing about it plainly. And what was so exciting to me was there was no judgment. He was just stating the facts. And it was so exciting and liberating to me. So I went down to Claire to tell him that. I said, you know, you made me gay. And he's like, what? And I'm like explaining to him. Um, but uh, Does he have a lot of uh, gay people coming up tell- to him telling well, him Well, I that? don't know. And he didn't immediately know what I was talking about. I had to explain. But, but when I put it up on my Facebook, a couple of people said, God, you know, I had a very similar experience, yeah. you know? And I know that that seems so bizarre to people now because of the internet, yeah. where like literally 14-year-olds can watch any sex act you can imagine at the, you know, by tapping it out in their phone. It just, just doesn't exist. You know, pornography, for example, like where would, where would I see that? Where would I find that? And, and if you did, when you, you were going on holiday, adult, you had to go to a big, hol- big city, you had to go and find some new sex shop, you had to go in and buy a VHS tape or something or a magazine that would cost a lot of money. You know, it was just not, it was not feasible. So honestly, I just, it was all new to me. And how the world has changed, hasn't it? Unbelievable. Look at whatever you want on your phone now. Well, and sometimes I don't know whether that's, well, it's in general, I think it's, you know, it's a good thing to have all that information. But sometimes I I also think sometimes that, that maybe it was, that to me, you know, right up until my middle ages, I was finding new and exciting things about sex and sexuality mm. because I, you know, there was a slow discovery. Whereas now I think, you know, 14 year olds get it all dumped in their lap and one giant data, you know, dump. Yeah. And, and I wonder, God, I wonder if they're missing some of the, you know, the little excitement of discovering stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, I don't know. The mystery of it. Yeah, but then on other hands, I can also see all the positives. Like, for example, I know a lot of trans people and um, around my age and, or older and... I know a lot of them because at one time we were performers together because, you know, there was nothing about homosexuality, about trans stuff. There was literally nothing. And so a lot of trans people came to their identity then before the Internet so much slower and they would like, God, oh, maybe I'm gay. You know, I feel there's something different about me. Then maybe I'm a maybe I'm a drag queen because I enjoy this feminine stuff. And so they'd often be end up performing. And then slowly, then one day, oh, actually, you know, i got something to tell you. I'm not a drag queen like the rest of you. You know, I'm trans. And so it was a slower process. And that's a very, was a very long, lonely, Mm, difficult process. So nowadays, I think it's much better that you can be, you know, 16 and at home and discover your trans identity from the internet or other people like you. I mean, that's all amazing. Yeah, it's relative, isn't it? It's got some real positive aspects and some real negative ones as well. Everything. Unfortunately, I'm a real, you know, see both sides person. Sometimes (laughs) I wish I had the, you know, the the black and white view of some people, but I always like, God, there's never, nothing is ever totally good or totally bad. Yeah, that's true. It's always like grey areas. Things are just complicated. And you mentioned there about school. Did you uh, experience much homophobia yourself whilst you were at school? I didn't because quite honestly, we knew so little about it, it was hard to be homophobic because, you know, you have to know what it is. But I never particularly had any problems. You weren't on the receiving end of it. No, look, no. I'm a mouthy sort of, you know, with, with a bold streak in me. So, you know, I always got on totally well with the bad boys smoking in the toilets, okay. you know. But I, could, I was also the kind who would then spend the afternoon playing Dungeons and Dragons with the nerds. Like, I, you know, so I never had any personally had any problems. But God, there was other boys in my school who were absolutely tormented and had a horrible time. So I was, you know, my personality saved me from that stuff. 
But so was that homophobic there. bullying those other boys? Some of it, yeah. Yeah, and but did that impact on you in any way and how you saw yourself and coming to, to terms with your sexuality? Well, not particularly, I, I would say, because I guess, again, it had homophobic undertones maybe, but it wasn't very obviously about that. It was it was about any kind of difference really in school. It was, you know, the very nerdy boys or the very, you know, quiet mummies boys, as we used to call them, whatever. They were the ones who were tortured, you know. Mm. So it wasn't that I was sort of seeing it all through this lens of homophobia. Okay. And again, like I said, we just weren't that aware of all this stuff, you know. You know, I was like in Balmoral County Mayo, 1970s. It just wasn't a huge thing. A small community, everybody knew each other. You know, I was much more likely to get slagged for other things. You know, um, whatever, you know, what colour my hair was, what, you know, what road I lived on, you know, that stuff. Mm. And during your adolescence, this is my favourite question, who were your crushes growing up? Oh, well, the first time that I remember having a real, like, physical reaction to somebody was actually to Pierce Brosnan. Okay. And I'll tell you why I was. Navin man. Yeah, which is so funny. Um, Like, I had, like, little warm feelings about people. I don't know if you were old enough to remember Michael Murphy, the newsreader, who, of course, in later life I discovered is a big flaming homo. He's still reading it until recently. I think so. Yeah, yeah not, not super recently. Yeah. He always got, he was always the guy who did, he always was the best at reading the news for the deaf because he's so very clear. And he like had a mustache and he's kind of handsome in that, you know, well, unthreatening to me at the time kind of way. But Pierce Brosnan is in a movie called The Long Good Friday and sort of a gangster movie set in London. And he's like young, very young in it. And there's a scene and in the movie he's a, a hitman and he's about to, he needs, he has to kill this guy. He's, he's a minor character in it. But uh, the guy is, I think in my memory of it, the guy is actually acknowledged to be gay, you know, the older mafia guy, whoever it was. And he's in like a Turkish sauna type thing in England. So it's like he's in like bath, a bathhouse, essentially. And Pierce Brosnan is trying to lure him or whatever. And, he, and Pierce Brosnan is in like this sort of swimming pool and he gets up, but being sexy because he's trying to get the guy's attention so he can kill him. And he gets up out of the water and like I just have such clear memories of him coming up out of the water and his chest hair has been all flattened down and his black chest is all flattened down by the water and everything. And me just like having, you know, some sort of fit of reaction to that. And uh, so that's my first like super like, oh my God, this is a sex feeling I'm having. And so you, you didn't go through a period of confusion though? I did, yeah. Oh, no, okay. I did, Or yeah. did you have any girlfriends or... I did, yeah. Oh. I had my you know, busy girlfriends. Um, yeah. And even when I was a college student, you know, I'm not a gold star gay. I've had, I've had sex with two girls. Oh, you have? Okay. Um, now, one of them, it was like I was in France. I was 18 uh, in a tent working on a farm and, a, and a, an older, very vocal, grabs what she wants, girl from Leeds. <laughs> you know, basically sexually assaulted me and I let it happen because I was just wanted to find out what this thing was. And then, so that was a weird sort of bizarre one. But And then I had sex with a friend once. Okay. Yes, when I was again a college student. But uh, there was some confusion. Or certainly when I was a bit younger than that, there was definitely the period where I didn't want to be this thing, you know, that I was reading about in a science book. Mm-hmm. And so I definitely you know, fought it like everybody does at that age for a while. I was relatively lucky that I think that I didn't, you know, it, it didn't fuck me up. But there was a long period of confusion there, wasn't yeah, there? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Because like for, literally for ages, there was nothing to model myself on. Yeah. I literally thought I might be the only homosexual in the world, <laughs> except for I know there's something because there are these jokes in the playground and then I saw the science book and, you know, but I'd never seen one. 
or met one. And you mentioned in your book that your older brother Lorcan is, is also gay. Yeah. I've always wondered what that must be like to have a number of gay siblings in the family. Because a lot of the gay people that I know, actually probably the majority of them, have a gay brother or yeah, a gay sister. Super common, yeah. Yeah, so do you think that makes it easier or more difficult to come out? Um, the coming out thing, it all depends. Um, like in my case... It, it was, again, it was, it, was, it was good and bad in the sense that he's seven years older than I am, but he's a sort of a genius. And when he was 15 years old, he applied for, without telling anybody, and won a, a scholarship to go to this international school on an island off Canada, okay. where they take two students from every country in the world every two years or something, wow. or you know, every country in the world, or most of them. And they look for like the super brightest and best, and they're, they're sort of being, they're educating them to be like, to affect change in the world and, you know, to be leaders and all that sort of stuff. So, like, the roll call of, of his classmates are, is wildly impressive. And so he went off at 15 to do that. And when he was there, he did, you know, that's a two-year thing. And then they, he won a full scholarship to go to Harvard. Wow, that's incredible. So he has never lived at home since he was, you know, 14 or 15. And so he was always a bit distant. And I didn't know that he was off living a gay life. And... Like me, he's not a real home bird, so he came home rarely, sort of. And the family had often discussed that Lorcan might be gay. And it turns out that that weirdly took the spotlight off me. And so I ended up telling my parents first. So did you overhear those discussions? Yeah, no, I was part of them. Oh, really? Yes. It was like at the dinner table. Okay. Do you think Lorcan might be gay? Whatever. <laughs> Your family were really progressive, weren't they? <laughs> um, they? They were in lots of respects, yeah, for their own... Time. And not to say that, my, you know, for example, my mother had some issues, difficulty, you know, because she was very Catholic and all. But we were always open about talking about stuff and everything. Mm -hmm. But uh, I told my sister first, one of my sisters first, and she called my older brother to go, oh, my God, Rory's gay. And he goes, so am I. And that was the first confirmation we'd had is that. And then there was a, a period, I don't even remember how long, before we told my parents. And then I ended up blurting it out to my mother by accident, sort of. Uh, that's a whole other story. But And... They didn't know about my brother then or anything. So I ended up... Oh, you blurted it out about your brother? No, about me. Oh, about yourself. But then I also felt like I can't now lie to her about my brother or whatever. So I can't oh. remember exactly, did I have to tell her that Lorcan was? Or I avoided it enough to get Lorcan to do it really quickly. But anyway, I ended up doing it first. Okay. So he's seven years older than me, but he was off fucking Harvard. Okay. And I was at home in Ballinrobe County Mayo at the time, you know, having to sort of hide it every day. So it was just yeah. getting too much. So, because he was meant to be coming out. That was the plan. He was writing the perfect coming out letter and all that stuff. So I was just like waiting for him <laughs> to hurry up and do it. And he didn't. So, um, and I did it. Blurted you stole it his thunder. Well, I think he would be say he was <laughs> glad he didn't have to do it. But uh, so, yeah, so my parents found out about both of us at the same time. But I was the one who ended up having to come out. So it didn't help in that sense. But after that, it's fabulous having a gay brother. I love it. Because, it's cool you know, now when you're, yeah, when you're older, isn't it? Well, yeah, but immediately then, you know, I can talk to him about stuff or he, he gets the, the, the stuff that maybe the others mightn't get so well. And, and, and also, we're, um, you know, his friends, and, you know, I get on with his friends, he get on with mine. You know, in that sense, yeah. yeah, we have fun together. So he wasn't there during your adolescence. It wasn't something no. you couldn't sit down and talk to him about it or anything. I became like that. much closer to him when I was like a college student, and he was living in London at the time, and I stayed with him, you know, in the summers and worked and that kind of thing. So, I, you know, I'm much. I became much closer to him as an adult than I was as a kid because he wasn't there. 
And you've said in the book as well, and in a few of the interviews, like a lot of gay people, that you have a deep aversion to religion. So I would like to know how far does that go? Are are you anywhere on the spiritual spectrum or do you consider yourself to be completely atheist? Or? I am. Yeah, no, I'm atheist. And I'm, you know, I, I'm, I'm never even sure what people mean when they say they're spiritual, really. And, you know, if it means that I'm thinking about your place in the world and on the planet, I guess I do that sometimes. Yeah. But I don't believe in some sort of higher power that's, you know, affecting change in my life if I ask for it and all that stuff. No, I don't believe in that. Um, I think David Norris said to me he really doesn't like that ex- that expression, uh, spiritual, not religious. It's just, to me, it's, it's a bit of a cop-out. I don't okay. know what it means. I'm often, especially on Twitter and all that, people come at me because they think I'm super anti-Catholic and blah, 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 blah. And I'm not. You know, my own family, who I love dearly and wouldn't change anything about them, yeah. are Catholic. So I... People have their different things. Do I think that they're actually wasting that energy and they'd be better doing it? Probably, yes, I do, if I'm being honest with you. But, you know, I waste my energy on other things. So, you know, I don't hold it against them. But what I do hold against people is when they try to impose their religious mm. views on other people. Like, let other people do their thing. You do your thing. And if it's all about God and religion, why the fuck do you care? You know, about anybody else. And, of course, I end up, you know, giving out about Catholicism a bit more because that's the one that affects my life. I'm not going to be given out about, you know, Hindus because they're not trying to impose Hindu stuff on me. So, but I'm not anti, you know, Catholic or anything like that. Am I generally against the idea of religion? Yeah, I think it's, you know, people could do use their energy and time better. But I, I you know, I, I'm for philosophy. And in a way, you can look at religion as a kind of way of philosophy. I just worry that it boxes people off and it, it allows people to behave badly to other people. That's my problem with religion. People use it as a justification for treating other people, discriminating against exactly, other people. Yeah. And... You know, oh, no, the God would want me to, you know, hate yeah. you for that and you know, not let you do that and all that stuff. So um, I still always come back to the one like if it's all true and everybody in the world, ha- you know, if you're Irish, you're, yeah. chances are you're Catholic. And, and if you're born in, you know, uh, Pakistan, well, chances are you're Muslim. And everybody thinks that they're right. And they were just super lucky to be born in this place where the right religion is. And, and then, you know, I used to say that to my mother, that argument. So you, they can't all be right. Yeah. And my mother would try to do that. Oh, but, you know, God lets everybody in. You know, he's happy. And, that, you know, and then I said, well, then in that case, why don't you just become a Hindu tomorrow if it doesn't really make any difference? You know, so that's the stuff. Like, that seems so blatantly obvious to me that it's not true. Um, and... You know, people just don't see it. Yeah, I agree with you in terms of the religion and saying, Mm. oh, I'm right and your religion's wrong and all that. To me, that's complete nonsense. So what do you mean by spiritual then? I think there is something beyond the physical world. And I think these religions, thousands of years ago, they just adopted spiritual principles. They hijacked it and built religions around it. Well, I'm totally open to the fact that there might be something else beyond the physical world. And I think physics teaches us that there probably is. But the idea that there's a sentient being who, you know, has decided, wants you to behave yeah. in a particular way or do particular things or that you're going to, you know, appeal to him and he will you know, take away your cancer or whatever. No, that's all nonsense as far as I'm concerned. But having said that, there are good points with too. I like the pageantry of a bit of religion and yeah. all that, <laughs> the dressing up and all of that. Um, the theatre of it. Exactly. I think a bit of Catholic guilt around sex is great. <laughs> Not too much, but enough just to make it exciting. I don't ever want to be German about sex where yeah. everything is just like, oh, I go to Tesco and I'll yeah. do the sex act. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> I don't want that. Um, I like the kind of feeling a bit dirty about it. You know, so Makes it more fun it. that way. Well, and also, here's a ties into the drag. You know, I've done a lot of 
thinking and researching about drag over the years. And, you know, every culture on the planet has some form of cross-dressing, draggery, performance stuff. And in primitive societies, they are usually the medicine men, the ones that we would look at and think, girl, she's flaming. And because in most primitive societies, they see people, you know, flamers as embodying the divine, both feminine and, yeah, and masculine. Yeah, twin souls. Yeah. Yes, and so they were like lauded and held up as something you know, spiritual. And so most of the priests in primitive societies are basically just flaming queens. I've heard that before. I need to buy a book on it or study it more. Mm, I've heard that about Native Americans. And I've heard that about Muslims as well. That centuries ago that yeah. gay people were really, well, really Native respected Americans within had like the Muslim community. Sex idea, you know, um, two spirits and all that. Mm. But, you know, that whole... You know, primitive society have a place for people like me, um, and uh, and it's only modern societies, uh, and because of religion, so often, you know that they try to crush us out. And so, a, a lot of gay people they've quite checkered relationships with their hometowns and with mm-hmm. in the cultures that they grew up in. But you've always struck me as you're someone who's incredibly patriotic. You really delight in being Irish. Mm. So, was that something that you've ever grappled with? Oh God, yeah. Like my, my relationship with Ballon Robe is always a little funny because not because, you know, it's a great town. People are great. Uh, no issues at all. But I didn't feel like I could really be me there, certainly in the past, like when I was young and all that. So my memories from a teenage was quite lonely there. I mean, I had friends, but there was all like I, I never really wanted to go home. and sp- I would never have gone and spent the summer there when I was, you know, after like 12 because I just... I was always hiding something about me and, and the things that I was interested in weren't available to me there. You know, I always felt like a square peg in a round hole in Ballinrobe. Now, of course, things have changed so much and all of that, but that has lingered with me a bit. So, I mean, I think my childhood was idyllic up to about 12. Like, you couldn't have asked for a better place to be a, a kid and a better place to grow up and, you know, running around a small Irish town in the 70s where you know, you, know, you people didn't worry about traffic or, you know, being kidnapped or whatever they worry about nowadays. Um, it was just totally free and wild and fun and easy. And it was only later as I started to be interested in, you know, the things that I'm interested in now that that wasn't part of the, the, the culture in, in a small Irish town then. They all wanted me to be into the football and I just wasn't, you know, <laughs> you know, I remember the teachers like, but why? And I was like, I don't like it, you know, yeah. um, but I was allowed to say, how I do don't feel, like it. You how know, do you so. feel about football now? I think I heard that on one of your shows because I still to this day have an irrational hatred of, I don't like using the I'm H a, word, but I really do not like I, football. I'm a bit like that. And it's because, it's not because, like I have some great friends who are totally GAA heads and they're okay. fabulous <laughs> and all that. And I, soccer friends and all that. But for me, it's too laden with other things. So, first of all, I am the cliche. I wasn't interested in it. I didn't enjoy it. I wanted to be doing other things. So, to me, it was felt like an imposition when they were trying to make <laughs> yeah. you do it. And secondly, to this day, I still don't like that kind of group endeavor because they were, they're less so now, but I think they still are in lots of ways, really cold houses for someone like me. All the stuff, like in that culture that was held up and revered, especially in GAA at the time, mm. you know, going back a bit, it was all the traditional Irish man and yeah. there was absolutely no way queers fit into that thing. Yeah. And there's that thing, isn't there, about straight people, when they're in, especially straight men, when they're in a big groups together, that it brings out some of the worst in them, this sort of 
tribal thing. mentality. Well, it's why you see the bad behavior in soccer and all. Yeah. I know the GAA isn't terrible like that, but it's just there in that. Th- and it may. I never felt more different and weird and and awkward and out of it than at those kind of things. And you know. Do you, you know the alternative is Ireland? Yes, is. of so course. So we did yeah. that for like 20 years or something. And yes, that was about silliness and fun and all of that. And then, of course, it has a serious intent. We were raising money for HIV and AIDS charities. But it had another thing about it that was very serious in, in, in a way, which was, you know, trying to expand the definition of Irishness. There's another thing I'm always banging on about. but And it was because of that. Those cultures, the GAA and Irish dancing and all of that stuff, it felt exclusionary like I was mm. excluded from that and I felt like my very Irishness was called into question because I didn't I wasn't into that stuff and so the alternative was on and it, another intent of it was to make Irishness more inclusive and to say you can be a absolute as queer as queer as queer can be and you can have you know rub glitter on your arse and run around the stage of the Olympia you know doing silly versions of classic Irish songs and all the kind of things that we used to go on at that and, and, and that's totally fine. That is totally Irish. And the people here are as Irish as the guys, you know, at the GAA match last Sunday. So that's what it was about. I wanted to be considered totally Irish because I am totally Irish. But sometimes, because I wasn't into those things and because I was into these things, yeah. I felt like, ah, well, you know, he's not really Irish. That's what I always felt. You really have broadened the definition of what it means to be Irish, don't well, you that, think? That, see, to me, that's you know my life's work in a sense. People say, "Oh, you're a gay activist," and I was like, "Well, you know, to me, not really. Yeah. I'm an Irish activist. Yeah. I wanted to to make Irishness a concept that was more elastic, because I fe- I used to feel it was so rigid, and the definition didn't include someone like me." Yeah, no, I mean, I still, even to this day, I hear football in the background on in the TV and I'm just I know, gone. I, I I'm just two. like, no way, I am not staying and, and, for and this. And it's such a cliche, but it's, it's, it's a, I laugh about it because it's the same thing about gays and hairdressers. It's a chicken and egg thing. I don't believe that gays are any particularly better at, at you know, cutting and styling hair. But what it is, is there were gays and they thought, where can I, where can I just be me and nobody's going to give a crap? Hairdressing, because look, there's where, there's where there are other gays. Yeah. So we're, we were attracted into industries in that where we knew, whether consciously or unconsciously, that we could just be ourselves and people would just drop it. You know, yeah. am I just intrinsically not the kind of person who's ever going to enjoy field sports? <laughs> or is it because they excluded me when I was younger and I still hold that with me? And, you know, and so it's not that I'm naturally never going to like field sports, mm. but it's because field sports always you know, excluded me and made me feel uncomfortable because of the culture around them. You know, when people <clears throat> assume that you like it, I just, I would love to know what that feeling is like because I don't, I've never walked around assuming that people are, like the same things as hey, I do. Well, that's exactly what my bit used to be in that show is about getting into taxis and the taxi driver, he wants to have a conversation with you or whatever. Yeah. And so he just immediately goes to football. And then you have this moment in the cab where you can either just... No, I hate football. I'm not, I'm not interested at all. But then there's a kind of an bad. awkwardness yeah. because you're like rejecting his attempt at a conversation and he'll be thinking, oh, I've got a gay. You know, yeah. <laughs> it's just like a bit weird. So sometimes I sort of half lie and I'll sort of, oh, oh, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Um, and you know, try and say something about it. But then inside I'm thinking, why the fuck are you lying about yeah. pretending to be into football just so the taxi driver won't feel uncomfortable? You know, all those things. Just I, some, I used to wish, and sometimes I, I still do, 
that I could just comfortably go through the world and never have to worry about those things. But that just isn't the way. That's why I love getting yeah. into a woman tax yeah. driver. So chances are she probably will sense maybe easier what I am or, you know, or she just won't go to the football thing, you know, immediately. So, yeah. And when you went to art college, you started to get into drag. Yeah. So how do you go about coming out to people as a drag queen? Do you remember telling your friends well, and family and how course, did they respond back then? Well, you know, nowadays here in Ireland, I don't have to, you know. Um, well, we're, this is the weirdest thing ever. My family knew I was doing in drag before and then, then I told them I was gay. And they were just like, it was to do with this thing where my older brother was taking all the suspicion. Yeah. And so they just never really thought about me in that way, which just seems so weird. And that's also only because I was waiting for him. It went on for years. He was meant to be writing the perfect letter to come out. So I'm not waiting for him to happen. But I'm living my life in the meantime. So like my parents came to my final year exhibition in our college, which was all draggery. But they thought that their straight son was doing that. Like, <laughs> so it's funny. I know I, I've always... I've never had a problem telling people I'm uh, a drag queen. I used to sort of sort of try and back, explain it more because for years I tried to get people to take what I did more seriously. And most regular folk out there uh, used to think just, you know, like, oh, yeah, right, I saw a drag queen in Lanzarote once. And they, that's it. If you ask somebody about a stand-up comedian, they understand that there's a million different types of stand-up comedians and yeah. they do it for different reasons and they have different things but they don't get that about drag queens they think it's all they're all the same that they're just you putting on the dress is the act and do you um, notice there's been a shift now in recent years with rupaul's drag race drag yes. has really hit the mainstream yeah. <laughs> you don't sound too happy about that i'm not um, <laughs> and the longer it goes on the less happy i am about it i got into drag because it was underground and you punk and discombobulating and two fingers and transgressive and all that stuff and it, it, it's so much less that now because it's become so mainstream. So that's one of my things that I've had to... And that mirrors my own life, by the way, because I've become so mainstream in, in this country, especially. Now, cover of VIP magazine. And all that stuff. Or guys. That is not the transgressive underground punk drag queen stuff that I got into it for. But can you see that maybe as a, a sign of victory for the work you've done and for the yes. gay movement also? No, no, I understand. And there's like everything I actually said, there are good things and bad. And there's some great things about the popularity of drag now and people understand a bit more about what you do maybe. It's not a, you know, people aren't afraid of it in the same way maybe. And lot, lots of things. And in the beginning, certainly when RuPaul's Drag Race was becoming popular, I was like, oh, this is fun. You know, people are you know, getting on board sort of. But... At this stage, it's so popular, it's so fashionable, it's so trendy that we all know that in a couple of years' time, it's going to be considered totally passe, totally uncool, totally because that happens to everything that's this popular. Yeah. And then my worry is it'll go back to being the people who are always doing it and it might be harder for them to make a living. Um, because, you know, and at the moment, of course, there's so many drag queens. Like every, like people now look at it as a legitimate career choice. And I used to think that was funny when that first started happening here in, like in Dublin, just because people would see Shirley Temple Bar and Veda and me and they'd think, yeah. oh, they're making a living. And they would think, oh, I'm going to try and be a drag queen. And that used to just blow my mind because we never had that thought. We were just doing it for the crack. Now with RuPaul's Drag Race, people like literally see it as a lucrative Legitimate career possibility. Career, yeah. and, um, and that's just so nuts to me. It's crazy you know. how it's changed, isn't it? And also, you know, the longer it goes on, the more I start to see more problems. And I don't know, like all drag now kind of looks the same because they've all learned them from YouTube videos and all that sort of thing. And, and certainly the drag that developed in this country 
and it's different, but the sort of English drag scene to a British drag scene to is very different from the one that was presented on RuPaul's Drag Race. And so that slightly bothers me because all these kids you know, here now, they have this idea of what drag is, and it's not the drag, their own local drag. And their own local drag is now becoming more like an American drag scene. Mm. So all of these things, yeah, you know, become homogenized. It's harder to differentiate yourself and to be original now, is it? Yeah. Well, because now these kids who watch the show, which is great and all, but they kind of think they know about drag now because they've been watching RuPaul's Drag Race. But that's a tiny, very specific kind of drag. And to me, it it has become an Instagram art form where people are all not, they think it's a makeup artist's job. And it is not. It's a live performance form. And it is great to have makeup skills and hair skills and all that stuff. That's all great. Everybody wants to look good. But that's not drag. You could teach a few of these young ones, uh, these whippersnappers, a thing or two, couldn't you? Well, I fucking could. But but they (laughs) taught me some things too, I I will say. Because I used to slightly resent that now the baby drags come out and it's their first time and they look pretty damn good. Because they've spent the last six months at home watching YouTube instructional videos that tells them every trick of the trade, every secret about makeup and hair and all that stuff. And in the past, before fucking YouTube, every drag queen looked terrible for 10 years because you're trial and error, trial and error, trial and error. And then some older drag queen will go, oh, here, honey, that you do that, you know, whatever, and give you a little bit and a little bit. And eventually you looked possible. Whereas nowadays they walk out, it's their very first time, they've bought everything on the internet, they've learned every makeup trick under the book from the thousands of YouTubers. And that used to annoy me. I would say, they have not worked for that. But then eventually I thought, I need to learn tricks too. So I then learned how to become you know, much better at hair from the internet. I started doing online oh. courses and stuff. Yeah. So, yeah. So some of that homemade DIY edge is a bit lost. Yeah. <laughs> when I started right, I had to make my own shoes because there was no internet. Where do you get a you, lady's shoe in a size yeah. man's 11? You don't. So I used to like I was literally God you're even a shoemaker <laughs> A really bad one You have so many slashes God. After your name <laughs> The internet came along And brought me to Shoes from China <laughs> And uh, finally uh, As someone who is known for Being incredibly wise And gutsy What would your advice be For anyone who's listening To this now And who is struggling With their sexuality Or their gender identity And who is afraid of coming out What would you say to them I can't really help them with this internal struggle, except for to say, and this sounds so, you know, you know, pat, you know, it gets better. But it honestly does get better. And I will say this, all the things that I worried about in that period of my life that I, you know, that I didn't want to change about me and that I hated that I thought I was and all that stuff. All of those things in later life became the things that I like best about me and that other people appreciate most in me. All the things that I hated have actually become the best things about me. And I'm not the only one. Other people, that's what they like about me too. I also think that having that bit of struggle in the end made me a nicer, better person. I really hate when you meet these occasional gays who have no empathy for other people who are struggling in other ways. Because I think we... Occasional gays, as in, is that more recent? Do you think no, that's I mean, younger I, I gays are? You know, the, you meet, sometimes you'll just, you, as in life, you meet people, regardless of sexuality, who are kind of cunts. Mm. <laughs> and, you know, they're not nice to people who are down on their look or, you know, they're dismissive or racist or whatever. And But that extra specially annoys me when it's a gay person. Yeah, I think that's true. You should be able to empathize. It may not be your struggle, but you had a struggle 
and you can you not remember what that felt like mm. and sort of project and sort of understand you know that so and I think for most gay people they are they do do that and are capable of that and so I think you know and I'm one of those I think it made me a nicer person you know I say often that I worry that if I had been straight I might be a total dick because I would be extremely comfortable in this world I'm a middle class you know, well-educated, white guy who's not horrible-looking. I don't have any, you know, obvious, you know, things for people to pick on. You know, I have good ac- the right accent. You know, I'd be driving around in a BMW working mm. for some bank, and I might be a total dick. You know, when I was 15, if somebody gave me the straight pill, I would have taken it. But since I've been about 16 or 17 years old, I would run screaming from that pill. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely not. If, if there was a pill to make you even gayer, I would take that one. <laughs> Rory, thank you so much for your time. It's I'm been sorry a- for nattering on. So no, no, you're fine. You're, you're grand, don't worry. Uh, no, it's been a pleasure meeting you and nice interviewing you. you and best of luck with all of your future endeavours and all that. And... I will stop emailing you now. I can leave you alone. You know, well, yeah, well, you know, my inbox is up. I am, uh, yeah. Nightmare. You've probably never seen. So them. I think I've only seen the last one. Okay, good. <laughs> <laughs> what a relief, because I actually searched you on my Outlook today, and I think I've emailed you qu- quite a few times over the last three years, which I was really embarrassed I'm, I'm, by. Apologies, apologies. No, no, don't apologize. I was really embarrassed because I didn't realize that I emailed you that many times. I looked like a weird stalker or something. So thank you, Rory. <laughs> <laughs> thank you.